Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now on to today's episode. What did it mean for the Apostle Paul's existence in Christ to be patterned on the cross? Why is the Christ hymn from Philippians 2 Paul's master story? And how does it speak not only to us as individuals, but to communities of faith? If Good Friday supplies the pattern of our Christian lives, how does Easter supply the power? And what does it mean for the church not simply to believe the gospel, but also become the gospel. Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Michael Gorman. Mike is the Raymond E. Brown Professor in Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's University and Seminary in Baltimore. He's written extensively on the theology and spirituality of the Apostle Paul. And our title today is, How Does the Apostle Paul Embody a Life Shaped by the Cross? and empowered by the resurrection. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Mike Gorman, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you so much for having me, Philip. I greatly appreciate it. Mike, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your role as Professor in Biblical Studies and Theologies at St. Mary's University and Seminary in Baltimore, and in particular, perhaps tell us a little bit about the journey that you've got on over the years to this particular role. Yes, thank you. Well, St. Mary's Seminary and University in in Baltimore, Maryland is a unique institution. It's the only, well, it's the oldest Catholic seminary in the United States. And as far as we know, it's the only one in the world that has an ecumenical graduate school within it. So sort of like two theological schools operating together. And that's really a wonderful environment to be in. So I came first as a part-time uh, faculty member in the ecumenical division in 1991, hard to believe, an opening for uh, a full-time professor in the seminary and, a, and an associate dean in the ecumenical division came about. So I, I was asked to take that position. That then became a full-time position in as dean of the ecumenical division and then when I left that uh, 10 years ago, I was offered this this chair that I now hold, the Raymond Brown chair. Raymond Brown, great Johannine scholar, had started his teaching career at St. Mary's uh, many years ago in the 60s. But for me, it was a real kind of miraculous event that I ended up there. I, I live currently three miles from where I was born. And in, in our field, it's very unusual to live and work for 30 years right next door to where you were born. So it's, it's a real blessing. And I have family here and friends here that go back 50 years. I hate to say that because it, it, it dates me, but yeah. We're really thrilled you can be with us today. Mike, we're here to discuss in particular your groundbreaking, what became a trilogy on Paul's spirituality and theology. It started in 2001 with the publication of a book I have in my hands called Cruciformity. Tell us how that book came about and how did it sort of start you on a trajectory that led to the other books that we're now going to discuss later? I wrote a PhD dissertation comparing 
the Apostle Paul and the Stoic Epictetus. And I looked specifically at the role of the self in those two authors. And what I discovered in that research was that there was a radical difference between how one should view the self if one is a Christian in, in the Pauline sense of the word, and if one is a Stoic in the Epictetus sense of the word. That is, do you primarily look out for your own interest? Or do you primarily look out for the interests of others? And in that dissertation, I actually used the word cruciform as an adjective one time, I think. But it was a very technical dissertation, as most PhD dissertations are, but I started mulling over that whole reality that I had thought I had uncovered and realized that other people had, had found similar things in, in other ways. And that led me to, to develop the noun cruciformity, meaning cross-shaped existence in Christ. But the subtitle of the book is very important, and it arose partly from the dissertation and partly from a friendship I was developing at the time with Richard Hayes, who spoke about narrative in Paul. So the subtitle of that book is Paul's narrative spirituality of the cross. So I was I wanted to look not so much at what Paul thought, but how Paul lived and how he wanted others to live. And so the lived experience, as, as spirituality is often defined, the lived experience of Christian faith and of Paul's faith really became important to me. So that book, I, I, I mentioned Richard Hayes. When I was working on the outline of that book, I had invited Richard to give a, give a lecture at our seminary. As he was leaving and getting on a train to go home, I showed him the outline, the working outline of what I was working on. I said, what do you think of this, Richard? Do you like it? He said, yeah, go for it. So that's uh, sort of how the book emerged. The, the book itself is really, it's an important book because it tries to cover the breadth of Paul's experience of God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God, uh, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, plus I add the um, virtue of or the reality of power. I look at individuals, I look at communities, I look at the old times and, and contemporary times. So for me, it, it embodies fundamentally my understanding of Paul in, in a pretty comprehensive way. If you had to look at one particular passage from the Pauline corpus from Paul's writings that for you captures something of his narrative spirituality of the cross. What, what, what would that be? Give us a sense of, of where you'd go. In, in cruciformity, I, uh, I argue that Philippians 2, 6 to 11 is Paul's master story. And that passage, the famous hymn or poem, as I prefer to call it today, is preceded by five verses, four of which say specifically in a parallel way that the Philippian community ought to, in a, in a spirit of humility and love, look out for one another's interests or others' interests rather than their own. And so it's a very, cruciformity is a very communal spirituality. This is sometimes misunderstood. People think that when they hear that word that it's all about the powerful or the individual giving up rights and just being completely almost masochistic or self-effacing. And that's not the focus of cruciformity. The focus of cruciformity is this communal life of looking out for the good of others rather than self. But in return, it's reciprocal. Others are looking out for your good 
And together we're looking out for the spiritual good of the world, so to speak. That connects obviously to mission. So I, I guess I would pick Philippians chapter two, have this mind in, here's my translation more or less, have this mindset in your community, which is in fact a community in the Messiah, Jesus, who, although, and even because he was in the form of God, did not count that equality with God as something to exploit for his own benefit, but emptied himself in incarnation and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now you, Philippians and other hearers of this text, can, by the work of the Spirit, have the same kind of fellowship with Christ and with one another in which you, as a body, are living in this Christ-like way. So in other words... Would it be fair to say that one of your key insights is that the cross for Paul is not something that just happened to Jesus, as if that was an interesting sort of thing that happened to Jesus outside Jerusalem, sort of around 30 AD, but rather it's the kind of lens through which to look at faithful Christian living in community as we live out a concern for others rather than a concern for ourselves. Yeah, that's very well said. Sometimes I say to my students, the cross for Paul and for us is not only the source of our salvation, but the shape of our salvation, the substance, if you will. So when, when Paul tells the story of Christ in, in a variety of ways of Christ crucified and Christ resurrected, I, I don't want to leave out the resurrection. Uh, when he tells the story of Christ crucified, he does it in a way which enables them to see that story as their story. That story is his story. That story he wants to be our story, the Philippian story, the Corinthian story, the Romans story. And it's, it's a story fundamentally of, of self-giving love. It's not a story of masochistic behavior, as, as some, I think, have misinterpreted uh, what, what it is. You said, I don't want to leave out the resurrection. And one of the things that you've done in the 20 years since you first published cruciformity is continue to tease out the role of the resurrection in this cruciform spirituality. And in one of your works more recently, you've, you've coined the term resurrectional cruciformity. Can you tell us how you came to that phrase and, and what you mean by it? Well, a couple of things. I never thought that I had been leaving out the resurrection when I talked about cruciformity, but apparently other people did, including several British scholars who were very perceptive and, and helped me to articulate this, this new phrase. So I had always uh, argued that the living Christ is the one in whom we live. I mean, you can't live in a dead person, right? You can't be in Christ if Christ is, is dead. And at the same time, I very much like the phrase of Ernst Kesemann, that the cross is the signature of the living one. I just, I think that really highlights one of the fundamental theological claims of the New Testament. Well, anyhow, uh, some years ago now, maybe five, six years ago, uh, a, a number of people started saying, Gorman is e emphasizing the cross to the exclusion of the resurrection. So I wanted to make it clear that I wasn't doing that. And so one scholar had suggested using the term anastaform, which is taking the Greek word for resurrection, anastasis, and and making it into a, an adjective, somebody else suggested resurrect a form. And I was concerned that those might be too, not only technical, but also misleading, as if 
we now have the embodied resurrection life, you know, eschatological life in the present. So that's how what led me to coin the term resurrectional, by which I mean very simply that the cruciform life is the life infused with the spirit and the life and the power of the resurrected Christ. It's the living Lord who is still the crucified one. It was very interesting when Paul speaks about Christ crucified, uh, at least on one occasion, he uses the perfect participle in Greek, which suggests not just a one-time act, but a reality that this is Christ crucified is the reality that we encounter in the resurrected Jesus. So keeping those two together is very important to Paul and and to me. So that's how the term came about. And that's fundamentally what I mean by it. You say they belong together. And I remember one of the phrases you used really captured this for me. When you wrote, I'm quoting you here, Mike, to be in Christ is to embody continuously and simultaneously Good Friday and Easter. Good Friday supplies the pattern and Easter supplies the power. I'm glad you brought that quote up. It's one of my favorite. The idea that this reality of life in Christ is grounded in the real person of the crucified, resurrected one that is simultaneously, or as you would say, simultaneously the one who is giving us the pattern of his life, of his self-giving, uh, loving, faithful to God and loving to humanity, his, his whole life being that, in, as Paul emphasizes in both incarnation and death, but also throughout his whole life, if we go to the Gospels. In any event, that inseparability of the crucified and resurrected Christ becomes for us the inseparability of a life that is defined by both his cross and his resurrection, not just sequentially, that we live now and someday you know, we'll die and we'll be raised. That's true. But even more fundamentally, that we live in this resurrected one who is never other than the crucified Messiah, the crucified Lord, and, and that we, therefore, paradoxically and strangely, live a life that is shaped by the cross, but infused with the resurrection power. Can you give us an example of what that might look like in an individual's life? So let me give you a really concrete example. We recently had a good friend who had a stroke and he lives alone and laid alone on his apartment floor for a week until he was found by a neighbor. So he's been recovering now for the last week. This is very, very recent. My wife and I went to visit him on, on Sunday afternoon, and he couldn't feed himself. So my wife ended up feeding this man who's my age, our age, to feed somebody else, not a child, but to feed a, to feed a peer. It's a very humbling kind of thing. And I think it was humbling for him, too, to accept a friend, a peer offering this food. But my, my wife, it, it was like she was experiencing a fresh blowing up, blowing of the spirit, that she had the privilege of helping him eat. And that was at lunchtime. Later in the afternoon, another friend went back. And by then, the, this friend in the hospital had improved just enough where he could feed himself. That captures for me 
both the spiritual and in this case, perhaps even the physical life-giving reality of a small cross-shaped act. As you say those words, Mike, I'm reminded of the words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 and onwards, where Paul says, for while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. Absolutely. That would be my go-to passage in 2 Corinthians 4, the one you just quoted in the couple of verses before and after it. That is, I think, the most profound statement of resurrection or cruciformity in Paul's writings. And is it your sense that Paul wants to hold those two so closely together because he knew himself the challenges of either living down a kind of cruciform life that was kind of masochistic in its self-denial and asceticism on the one hand and the risk of living in a kind of resurrectional the glory is already here sort of perspective and that he probably saw churches engaging in both mistakes and therefore wants to hold them so closely together yeah that's an interesting possibility he certainly saw for instance in the corinthian context he saw people who were living allegedly in in some sort of, I think, some sort of resurrection experience without any cross. And he he zeroes in on on Christ crucified from the beginning of the letter on on all the way through. In our own context, if I can just reflect on that for a moment, I'm very concerned about the ways in which power, if you will, a kind of misunderstanding of the resurrection life that leads to a, a misunderstanding of Christian power whether it's in the form of um, individual power or prosperity gospel or nationalism, so-called Christian nationalism, which is something we're dealing with in our country, but it's not just in our country. And as soon as you separate the cross from the uh, resurrection and focus only on the resurrection, you're going to move in that, in that direction of misunderstanding power. And I think that Paul did see communities like that, and he probably also also saw communities, perhaps like the Philippians, who were very self-giving and very, in a case, in their case, suffering. Paul had to tell them, "You've got the joy of the Lord." You know, the theme of joy that runs throughout Philippians that's being given to as a gift to the to the Philippian community, which is uh, engaging, as Paul says, in the same struggle that he's engaged in. You mentioned just now the challenge of the church navigating the relationship between resurrection and power. And I kind of agree with the way in which suffering can be seen as a sort of aberration or a distortion or a gross interruption into the Christian life as it really shouldn't be there at all. And yet you've written somewhere, I think, the likelihood of suffering as a result of faithful witness is there. What does this narrative spirituality of cruciformity have to say about the inevitability of suffering as a normal part of Christian living? I think the first thing to say about suffering is there are many different kinds of suffering. And the second thing to say, or maybe it's actually the first thing to say, is that suffering is not uh, an end in itself or a good in itself. And it is God's will, as we know from lots of places in Scripture, that uh, all tears will be wiped away and and suffering will come to an end. 
So I need to preface what I'm going to say with that, I think, important theological framework. At the same time, human suffering is part of being human, and it's there's no escape from it. And, and more fundamentally for Christians, suffering is not only a consequence of being human, but it's often a consequence of being faithful. And in the West, at least in the last couple of hundred years, in most of the West, not all of the West, and, and not at all times, that consequence of being faithful has not resulted in persecution, has not resulted in suffering, in at least suffering for the gospel. And one could rightly ask the question, is it because uh, suffering is not inevitable or because we haven't been faithful? But the church around the world certainly has known and and does know to this day the realities of, of suffering, whether it's China or North Africa or other places. So I think it's important for Christians to realize that, as Pauline tradition has it, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will, will suffer. That's a really bitter pill to swallow, and it's one that we don't, many of us don't have any experience of. But it's certainly the experience of the writers of the New Testament and of many Christians throughout time and place. So I think that's really important to emphasize that it's something we shouldn't be surprised at when it happens. At the same time, we all suffer as humans. And in Romans 8, Paul makes it so very clear that the normal response to suffering is to say God has abandoned us. That's that's what's implicit behind Romans 8. And in the the phrase for me or the paraphrase for me that you just started this part of the conversation with, what I'm trying to get at is based on Romans 8, that when in fact we do suffer, whether it's as part of being in creation or is because of our faithfulness to the gospel, that it is in those situations we might be tempted to think God has abandoned us, that in fact, according to the gospel, God is more intimately present, more powerfully present, And that is also one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. It's often struck me as I read Paul, Mike, that he often says, I'm not ashamed as he relates to his own suffering. You know, I'm not ashamed of my chains. I'm not ashamed of my suffering. Is that because the sort of expectation he was working against was suffering was somehow seen as something to be ashamed of? But Paul says, no, no, God hasn't abandoned me. It's not a sign of my failure. It's actually a sign of my faithfulness. Right. And that's grounded again in the fact of the shameful crucified Messiah. In Paul's day, in Paul's context, the Mediterranean world was very much grounded in the cultural expectations of what's shameful and what's honorable. And a crucified Messiah is as shameful as, as one can get. Identifying with that Messiah is the norm then and it becomes the norm of Christian identity and Christian mission. Um, being willing to take on the shame of the cross means willing to, to suffer for that, for that person, for that message. And just as Paul was therefore willing to identify in the cruciform suffering because it was a reminder of the resurrectional hope, so is there a sort of invitation to, to name the reality of suffering in our own lives, to, to, to not be ashamed of that, because actually that very place, I think you've said the very thing, i.e. suffering, that suggests glory is most distant is in fact proof of its proximity. 
it's it's the proof of its proximity because the proximity of the one who is providing that resurrection life. And if the whole pattern of scripture, the sequential pattern of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is suffering leads to glory, humiliation leads to exaltation, death leads to life. That to me is is a fundamental pattern of of the scriptural story, if that is our pattern, then when we are caught up in the thing that we think is the bad news of humiliation, of suffering, of death, the promise and the reality of what comes next can be most fully experienced. You spoke earlier about the significance of community as the framework for this spirituality of cruciformity in other words it's not just embracing suffering on your own or it's embracing giving of yourself in some sort of self-denying ordinance but rather doing that in a community that looks to the welfare of others and you you mentioned there about a community that looks therefore to the needs of the world and that strikes me one of the themes that you've developed throughout the books culminating in the third book is around mission what what is the relationship for you between cruciformity and mission the three books that you mentioned, the third one, the, the first one is is Cruciformity. The second one was entitled Inhabiting the Cruciform God. And when I was working on Cruciformity, the first chapter is actually called Paul's Experience of the Cruciform God. And as I began working with certain passages in Paul's letters, I realized that not only was Paul saying that we're to take on the Christ-like shape of Christ crucified, but that ultimately that's the shape of God, if you will. The, the, the God is so vulnerable. God is so self-giving that we can say God is, is cruciform. And there's a passage in 2 Corinthians where it says, God made Christ who made no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness or the justice of God. And I began to say, wow, that looks like not just becoming righteous, but taking on this divine characteristic of justice, which means God's way of being in the world of, of as, as Tom Wright, maybe lots of Brits uh, say, of putting the world to rights. That's, that's what it means to, for God to be in the business of being righteous or being just. And, and now the church then gets called in to participate in that Christ-centered, God-centered way of being in and for the world. So the third book is called Becoming the Gospel, Paul, Participation and Mission. And the idea there is not that we replace the gospel, but that we embody the gospel. So I think there's a sentence in that book that goes something like, Paul calls on us not merely to believe the gospel, but also to become the gospel and therefore to advance the gospel. And the basic thesis of that book is that it is in participating in God's mission as we see it revealed in Christ and empowered by the Spirit, that we take on those divine characteristics of, of faithfulness and, and self-giving love. And so I, I went back and looked more carefully at, at all the letters that I had written about many, many times in many places and reread them and then tried to think about what is Paul saying about the identity and mission of the church and how does that apply to, to us today? 
what do you think are the main takeaways from that that you found yourself uh, reflecting as of applying to the church, not only in the West, but particularly, particularly the church in your own context? Well, the idea of, of a cruciform mission suggests, first of all, a profound understanding of power, which is about anything but colonialism, right? The colonial enterprise was fundamentally working with a, cruci- uh, a resurrected Christ without a crucified Christ. And whether it's in the context of, of international, cross-cultural, intercultural mission work, or in an individual's parish or, or particular church, what does it mean to take on, as a community, a cross-shaped identity, both internally and externally? We've explored what cruciformity looks like, therefore, within the life of the church. I wonder, therefore, if we can end by thinking about what this journey has looked like for you. You talked about this starting with your PhD dissertation all those years ago and the work you've been doing uh, with the books over the years. What what are the ways perhaps this has informed your own prayers, if you like, if I can ask? What's been the spirituality that you found yourself inhabiting? I have made it a, a practice to begin my day each day with the thought, what is the story of Philippians 2 going to look like for me today? I, I, do, I do believe that that is Paul's master story. It's become my master story. What is that going to look like for me and for the communities in which I participate? That's my way of taking all thoughts and practices, obedience to the a uh, captive to the obedience of Christ, as Paul says in Second Corinthians. I don't make any claim to living that prayer or attitude well, much less perfectly, but that's who I am. That's who I try to be, I should say. You've given us an insight not only to your thinking, but therefore also to your own life and your prayers. We're grateful to you, Mike Gorman. Thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.